Welcome to Greater Possibilities from Invesco, where we put concerns into context and opportunities into focus. I'm Brian Levitt. And I'm Jody Phillips. And today in studio, we have David Nadell. David is a senior portfolio manager for the global equities team at Invesco, focusing on small and mid-cap international companies. Okay, Brian, so is now the time for international investing? <laughs> well, I guess if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me that question, Jody. Yes. What would you have? Oh, I'd have a few do- I'd have a few dollars. <laughs> okay, so you get this question quite a bit then I'm assuming. So so where does this question rank? Is it right up there with should I own Bitcoin and what's the US going to do about its debt? Yeah, those are those are the big ones. That's those are the Mount Rushmore. They're on the Mount Rushmore of questions. I, I guess we have to come up with a with a fourth one. But yeah, those are the those are the questions. Something about artificial intelligence, I'm sure. Um, okay, but you we'll know, add that. Yeah, it, look, it's understandable. That'll go in the uh, that'll go in the Teddy Roosevelt spot. <laughs> it's understandable though that that's a really popular question for you, right? The so-called lost decade of U.S. equity performance, you know, 2000, 2009, had investors looking elsewhere, trying to figure out what to do next. But then the decade after that favored U.S. stocks. So yeah, investors are wondering about what comes next and if it's the time, you know, to do something differently. Well, I do have a theory about this, and I'm sure that that David will as well. All right. What's your theory? Well, at first, these things tend to go in cycles. So um, I think what's critical to note is that the past decade wasn't lost in international the way 2000 through 2009 was lost in the U.S. Um, you did generate positive returns, but the uh, but the underperformance was similar to what the U.S. experienced versus international in the in the so-called aughts. Is that what we call it? The aughts, the, aughts. the 2000s? Sure. The aughts. We still haven't figured that out, have we? But yeah, I guess to your point, to everything, there is a season. Yeah. <laughs> turn, turn, turn. Um, you know, it, all, it was a very strong dollar environment. And each mm. time it looked like non-U.S. assets would participate, a U.S. policy decision or something unexpected would disrupt it. Unexpected, like like a trade war and a pandemic, that kind of unexpected? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the, and the Fed raising rates a few times in, in a slow growth environment. So you mentioned strong dollar environment, Brian. So like, as we all know, a strong dollar environment means that returns generated overseas by U.S. investors translates into fewer dollars when that money is brought home. So I guess to put a little bit of a finer point on the original question, is the strong dollar environment finally over? Well, let's see what David says. Um, but it does tend to happen when, when policy cycles, policy tightening cycles end. Um, you know, money can then start to look for other opportunities where valuations are more attractive. And we may finally be at the point where the Fed stops raising rates and we can all start anticipating an easing cycle. Oh, that's the fourth question. There you go. That's Jody. the Mount Rushmore question. We, that, we got, it. When's, when's, got it. <laughs> when's the Fed going to be done? All right. So we got the four. Bitcoin, U.S. debt, international investing, and when's the Fed going to be done? Perfect. There it is. There it is. All right. So now that we've got that settled, let's bring <laughs> David on to discuss the opportunities that he sees in international stocks, especially in that small and mid-cap space and where money might flow as investors look for opportunities in a potentially new dollar regime. David, welcome. Good to be here. So, so you have the answer to all four of the questions on, <laughs> on Mount Rushmore? Possibly. Possibly. If we can handle them one at a time. We can go one at a time. Well, <laughs> well, let's start with your wheelhouse, then we'll see your thoughts on cryptocurrency. No, we're not doing crypto today, Jody. <laughs> no, okay, good. I'll refrain. Thank goodness. 
So when you look at investors' portfolios, I have to imagine they're pretty overweight, the United States, whether that's by design or just performance that we've seen in, in recent quarters or, or years, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Uh, it's a combination of design, which probably put those investor portfolios overweight the U.S. in the first place, and then the relative uh, performance of the U.S., outperformance of the U.S. over international during the past decade has uh, stretched that to kind of uh, garish levels of imbalance. So, you know, if you think about, and therefore it's elevated the risks at multiple levels. So, I mean, if you think about, for example, our benchmarks or the benchmark for global SMID companies, in the last 10 years, that's moved from about a 45% U.S. weight to a 60% U.S. weight. Um, all 10 of the top 10 positions, uh, companies in that benchmark are U.S. stocks. Um, and that's because it's a market cap weight. You don't, it doesn't rebalance. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so uh, dynamics like that, I think, create kind of overlapping risks for investors, where if one of those risks doesn't hurt them, another one is very likely to hurt them. Uh, you have valuation risk because these companies are much more expensive, uh, the U.S. companies, than the international ones. Um, and uh, you have the risk of these being very crowded trades so that the companies that make up uh, the benchmark are you know, very heavily invested in and when people exit, it may not be pretty. Um, and you know, the, the dollar and uh, US outperformance are all basically cyclical. Uh, to your point, Brian, that you mentioned earlier, these they trade leadership. And it's looked like for the last 20 years, it's looked like roughly sort of a 10-year cycle, but that's there's no there's no magic Nothing to magic. that. Right, yeah. right. And when you think about that underperformance, I mean, in the conversation I had with Jody, I had categorized it as any time it looked like international was really going to get going. I remember years like 2016 into 17. I remember 2019. Something happened that disrupted it, right? It was so, trade wars or pandemics. Is that an accurate way to think about it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, investors react, uh, U.S. investors at least, I think suffer from significant home country bias. And so the devil that they know is more... Uh, uh, comforting than the devil they don't know. International equities is the devil that they don't know, um, which is understandable. But I mean, I will say abroad, it would be unthinkable to have the level of home country bias that U.S. investors have. Um, you know, if you're a U.K. manager, you know, you're not going to be 60% in U.K. equities right. and 40% in right. everything else. But it is understandable because the U.S. economy is so broad and, and you know, the leading economy of the world. Um, so uh, yeah, let's leave it there. So Jody, do you have your portfolio um, structured based on the Mississippi River? So half <laughs> is, uh, you know, seventy percent of companies headquartered to the east and thirty to the west. Or, or anything I'll, I'll like have that? to check. I'm not really sure how that allocation uh, <laughs> works out, but. David, you mentioned you know the devil you know, the devil you don't know when it comes to U.S. investors, and so. You know, do U.S. investors tend to see international small and mid-cap in particular as a distinct asset class the way they do in the U.S., right? What, are the, what do allocations tell us about that viewpoint? 
So, Jody, I think um, U.S. investors see international SMID cap in all the wrong ways. Um, they not only do not see it as an asset class, as indicated uh, by their allocations, which are less than 1% to international SMID versus around 14% for U.S. SMID. Again, massive home country less bias there. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Um, uh, but uh, I think they also see it as very, they see international SMID as very high risk, um, you know, high volatility. And it is, uh, international SMID is higher uh, standard deviation, uh, higher volatility than international large. But when you look at risk adjusted returns, because the returns uh, historically have been so much better from international SMID versus international large, those risk adjusted returns are better. So when you look at things like Sortino ratios or Sharp ratios, you're looking at an asset class which is producing very attractive risk adjusted returns. But again, investors are not really treating it even as an asset class in the first place, even though the opportunity set of international SMID is twice the size of US SMID. It's twice the number of companies in the benchmark. Um, and uh, so it really, it really is an asset class, right? But if you're, you know, if you're uh, thinking about asset classes from the vantage point of how US equity investors are allocating, it doesn't look like an asset class, less than 1%, less which than creates 1%. a tremendous opportunity. I, I think I have more beanie babies in my portfolio than people have, right? <laughs> Those things are going to make money. We're getting there. Eventually. Sortino ratio keep real holding. quick. Keep holding on to them, Brian. De <laughs> keep holding. Define Sortino ratio real quick. So Sortino ratio is uh, a sort of a better version of the Sharp. I mentioned the Sharp as Which well. Which is so return per unit of risk. The, exactly. The Sharp is return per unit of risk, where risk is defined as both uh, upside and downside. Whereas the Sortino ratio eliminates the upside risk. Oh, okay. So that, because um, people talk about risk and volatility, but they actually never complain about it when it's on the upside. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just assume volatility means downside. Yeah, volatility, it's like, yeah, the bad stuff. You like going down. So that's what the Sortino ratio does, is it's your kind of more uh, specific and, and fine-tuned version of a sharp ratio where it's eliminating, it's not punishing comp, uh, uh, returns for upside. It's okay. only punishing them for downside. So if I, I come up with one that's just upside, can I call it the Levitt ratio? Does that yeah, exist? Yeah, that would be, that'd be a great plan. I think a lot of people would be fighting you for the, for the, <laughs> for the name, name rights on the upside only uh, ratio. So then with a with a asset class like that and a, and a space like that the way you described it for for an active manager such as yourself right then that seems like it would be um you know a, a particularly good space to find opportunities how how do you think of it in that way Yeah that's exactly right Jody so it is a it's a it's a very large universe it's really inefficient mm -hmm. i mean we're looking at something like uh 13,000 companies that have wow. market caps between $300 million and $10 billion mm -hmm. outside the US. That's a lot of companies. And as that's I mentioned, small to mid. That's small to mid, yeah. As I mentioned, again, this is a much larger mm -hmm. uh, opportunity set than US. Um, you have a, a very large portion of the companies that have no analyst coverage whatsoever, even mm -hmm. among, the private, uh, among the more prominent companies within the, within the asset class. It's uh, common to have much less coverage than, for example, a prominent company in US SMID. Um, so it is a place where active managers have consistently added value, and that really 
uh, that really distinguishes international SMID as an asset class versus other equity asset classes. So if you think about like rolling returns, which we love to use because rolling returns really represent a true investor experience as opposed to like, you, you know, no one invests on January 1 <laughs> and sells on December 31st or like ridiculous periods like that. So if you look at rolling returns, three-year returns, five-year returns, 10-year returns, International SMID active management in growth has added on average about 330 basis points of outperformance per year for three-year rolling periods over the benchmark. And if you look at five-year periods, <clears throat> it's more like 250 basis points. Ten-year periods, it's more like 180 basis that's a points. Lot. And that's per year. So even you know, on the ten-year basis, 180 basis points of outperformance per year for ten years, that's going to make a huge difference in people's returns. And it's the reason that there really is not a um, viable uh, benchmark strategy for international SMID. In other words, for asset allocators to get exposure to this asset class, they're almost certainly going to go with active. You look at the portion of assets of the asset class that are in passive strategies, it's tiny. David, you talk about looking at thousands and thousands of companies. What are you looking for and what type of themes emerge in the portfolio that have you very excited? Yeah, so Brian, what we're looking for, I mean, our strategy is very much about high quality compounders. So we're looking for companies that can grow uh, regardless of what the economy is doing. In other words, acyclical growth. Uh, and we're looking for companies that generate consistently high levels of profitability, particularly internal rates of return. So things like returns on capital, but those derive from, let's say, high profit margins, which in turn tends to derive from very strong pricing power. So. What that, what that uh, uh, essentially means is that we invest in a lot of industry leaders. We're, we're, we're often invested, about a third of our portfolio I like to describe as global number one businesses, meaning that they have the undisputed world-leading market share in what they do. This is a little counterintuitive, I would say, for investors to hear about SMIDCAP companies. Small and mid, because yeah. in the US, a SMIDCAP company is rarely a global leader. You can be uh, you know, a $4 billion company in the US and sell to a single state in the country, <laughs> you know, like California or Massachusetts or something. On the international stage, it's a much tougher and, 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 and you know, more demanding standard. So if you're com coming from a small country, you don't have a large home market. You have to figure out how the whole world works. You have to adopt basically global standards. Um, and so these are really battle-tested businesses. And it's not surprising in that context that a lot of international SMID companies become global number ones. Can you give an example without necessarily mentioning the company? Just talk about what they do sure. and how they've grown to that place. I mean, there are so many. I could talk to you about, uh, I'll talk to you about a couple of our investments. So. One company uh, makes transducers. Uh, transducers are devices that uh, basically regulate the amount of electricity flow. Okay. Uh, so they would be used in something like uh, an elevator, for example, to uh, have have a very you know consistent uh, uh, flow. This is a small market globally. It's something like a, a, a billion dollar. Uh, market total in terms of sales. This is a tiny market, right? I mean, we're talking about niche businesses here, but this company has, you know, about a 50% share of the global market. Uh, so that's that's one example. Another company uh, uh, literally invented the cochlear implant. I don't oh, know if yeah. you're familiar with I cochlear I am very implants, familiar. 
Yep. My, so, one of my best friend's sons wears the cochlear implants. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it is totally uh, 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 an unbelievable technology because it, it literally gives the gift of hearing. And you mentioned and a, speech, a son. right? And speech, it's, right? It's because a, without yeah. the hearing, you yeah. you're 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 uh, really at a disadvantage. And you mentioned it's a son, probably a young child, the typical. Uh, or maybe a growing, <laughs> growing child, but but the typical uh, uh, um, beneficiary of a cochlear implant is a child. He and was a baby. A baby. Yep. Yeah. And and you know this is a, a technology that will last the life of the child. Um, it requires a lot of software updates. So there's about uh, a third of their uh, of this company's revenue, and even more of their profit is coming from. Uh, recurring revenue, right? We, that's another thing we really like to look for in our businesses. High portions of recurring revenue. We like these businesses to just compound. Um, and, um, you know, you can literally, with this company, run a discounted cash flow per patient <laughs> because you're going to get the lifespan of that patient, uh, you know, 75-year uh, lifespan of a beneficiary of a uh, cochlear implant. But essentially, what we're looking for, I mean, maybe those give you a couple of illustrations, but, you know, Companies that um, are going to—they're—they're—they're they're, they're built to last. They have a capacity to suffer. They are going to do well in any sort of an economic environment. Um, a lot of them tend to be quite kind of—I uh, might say—boring or almost like humdrum type of B two B companies, right? That are below the radar. I mean, another one of our prominent holdings. Uh, does steam systems. No one even thinks about steam systems. But, you know, two-thirds of Nestle's expenditures on energy are for steam. It's a mission-critical service that uh, the company is providing, and that's typical of our holdings is mission-critical. So, you know, when, when things get tough, um, uh, you know, their customer, which is a corporation rather than an individual, is very unlikely to cut that service. And so what, you know, what you'll see in our strategy is kind of a de-emphasis on, on consumer discretionary because we find that uh, consumers in the small and mid-cap space are quite fickle. We rather deal with a corporate buyer, much more reliable. Everything we're doing is we try to de-risk the portfolio at the level of each company. So we have extremely high conviction in each company we invest in to the to the level that we would be comfortable having the entire portfolio in any of our individual wow, holdings. Wow, that's a bold mm. statement. Yeah, and you know management well. You visit them. You kick the tires. That's right. Yeah, we we certainly do all of that fundamental research that is pretty standard across our industry. You've but you have good status on your airline, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> uh, it, it, it's uh, it's a perk of the job. That's right. <laughs> uh, but we do we do a lot more than that. We also do strategic research. We have a person fully dedicated on our team to strategic research, which is talking to former executives at companies, talking to customers, talking to suppliers, understanding the ecosystem of a business. That's work that a lot of other uh, you know, mutual fund managers or management teams don't really do. And so we're getting a really full picture of these companies. Yes, we do visit them on site. Uh, you know, next month I'm going to Sweden to see companies, the, the, the uh, month after that in October to uh, the United Kingdom to see companies, hence those frequent flyer miles. Right. Um, and um, and uh, 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 two people on my team will be in Japan uh, uh, next month seeing companies where I was last September. 
Uh, so yes, we, we, we do that work, but I think supplemented by the strategic research, which really adds a nice edge to our process. Jody, are you willing to be a companion on some of these trips? Oh, sure. I, I could collect some frequent flyer miles for sure. Um, I'll put, I, I'll I was put... getting the sense from David he wanted company. <laughs> definitely, definitely. They're, they're, a lot, they're a lot of fun, and you learn, you learn so much. I mean, it really makes the job uh, so uh, uh, engaging and, and gratifying oh, to sure. travel and see yeah. these companies and, and just like, the, you know, the, the, the idea of being paid to learn uh, is, <laughs> is really, bad. it's really a gem not of this uh, You spent this a profession. lot of your childhood paying to learn, right? That's right. <laughs> if I tell That's you nice. I'm interested in steam systems, does that help? Does that, does that get me a ticket on the plane? Oh, aren't you? You're big into <laughs> tra sure. I mean, transducers, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I, the you, one. There you go. You, you would be the you would be the one out of a million who who if you if you're able to convince someone you're genuinely interested in steam systems. But steam systems are not uh, just to clarify that in case people are you know picturing a steam engine or something and wondering why you'd invest in the 19th century technology. <laughs> steam is um, is used in so many processes that are literally day to day processes. So pharmaceutical production. It's a bactericide. It's a sealant. It's used in beer production, which people can relate to. Okay, there you um, go. It, yeah, uh, petrochemicals, it's just got a, an incredibly broad level of applications, which is why Nestle, again, uh, two-thirds of their energy uh, uh, outlays mm -hmm. are for steam systems. Um, but for us, from an investor perspective, you know, what's great about steam is it's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, corrosive, right? Mm -hmm. So it means that, that all these parts need to be replaced. And so they can put in the initial traps and all of that, set up a, 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 a factory floor with, uh, with all of these items that look sort of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Sure, absolutely. But then part, parts wear out. And, and so they, they, that gives them, you know, in the, in the case of this company, it's something like, you know, 80% of their operating profit comes from recurring revenue. And for us, that's like, that's the secret sauce of what we do strategically is when you have... Uh, this recurring revenue, you can build models that that will that you can rely on for predictable cash flow for years to come, and that tends to result in favorable outcomes for investors over time. So you've described, you know, a, a pretty wide range of of companies. Are there any themes, commonalities that that are emerging um, lately from all those different types of businesses that you're interested? I mean, you know, we're tech innovation. Um, you know, our last episode of this podcast focused on artificial intelligence, which is on the Mount Rushmore now. So, you know, are there themes that are that are kind of gathering from from all of these different types of companies that you're looking at? Yeah. So, Jody, I would say definitely there are themes that emerge. I mean. Uh, I guess the the one thing I, the one caveat I'd give is they are the themes are the result of a bottoms up process as opposed to being, you know, us as a PM group saying AI is hot we got to get exposure to as much AI as possible that's not how we invest we we want to invest in companies that meet the financial characteristics that are going to result in compounding and more predictable lower volatility returns for investors, um, but that having been said, uh, you know. Uh, we we're we're happy to invest with companies that are closer to the action on some of these mega themes that are happening in the marketplace, like AI, for example. One way to to uh, that we benefit from that and and uh, is through uh, IT consulting companies. So IT consulting companies are kind of an agnostic play on 
uh, these mega themes. Uh, and you never know where the mega th where an individual mega theme will go. I mean, we all remember like disk drives. <laughs> Do we? Vaguely. I don't know. Vaguely. Maybe not. Yes. Not anymore. Um, there's so there have been so many mega trends in technology that people got ex extremely excited about and sent valuations into the stratosphere, and then literally three years later, no one's talking about them. But IT consulting companies are going to be there to advise on those issues in a much more comprehensive way and benefit regardless of whether the technology is long lasting. Uh, medium cycle or extremely short cycle and just, you know, dies a quick death. So I'm, I'm not making a prediction on AI that it's sure, like going to disappear sure. over the next couple <laughs> months. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we would, we love, we like to align ourselves with businesses that take a more uh, agnostic approach. And well, let's see, I mean, other themes, I would say, you know, value added distributors um, are, are a big part of our portfolio. So these are companies that are involved in uh, the distribution of highly sophisticated products where they have very close customer relationship with corporate customers, very technical products. So distributors that are not subject to, let's say, an Amazon effect at all, because this is stuff that requires like a lot of consult co consultation and a lot of implementation. So value-added distributors are a theme. Businesses, and those are businesses which have tremendous pricing power, great in an inflationary environment. They can immediately pass through uh, inflationary in increases uh, to their cost structure onto their customers. Um, uh, I'd say, you know, medical devices are a, a theme that, that we come back to uh, uh, repeatedly. I mentioned the company that created the cochlear implant. There's many medical device companies that we own. Uh, in the SMIDCAP space, medical device companies are a natural fit because uh, they will often have a very large portion of recurring revenue from sort of some sort of back-end service. Um, and uh, other areas of healthcare are less of a fit for us, like pharmaceuticals, because the, those are typically companies where they'll have one productive drug and then a pipeline. That's too risky for us, right? We like more certainty. So medical device, I'd say, is another theme that uh, is recurring in our in our in our portfolio okay um, so i can i can listen to you talk all day about bottom up and themes and and i'll eat it all up but when for the investors who are listening who have have now dealt with the you know the the, the decade of underperformance of international investing or concerns about geopolitical risks or regional hotspots outside of the United States that are now sitting here looking at valuations more attractive you talking about all these really interesting ideas how do you get them over the hump to think about international are there certain catalysts that you would look for as an investor where you would say you know, this is the type of environment that starts to favor non-U.S. dollar assets. Yeah, um, I, you know, it's it's hard to identify catalysts um, with certainty for sure, and and we can almost uh, we can almost say with <laughs> with some confidence that whatever it is, it'll not be what people what people predicted. But I think an obvious um, area that people should be tracking and, and what will likely be a catalyst is is just re reversion to the mean with currency because the dollar currency is always a, a, a mean reverting phenomenon and you know the dollar has reached these points of incredible strength before only to return to uh, to uh, to that mean you, you saw this with uh, you know uh, in, in in the 80s with Paul Volcker's you know supercharging of interest rates and then uh, then they, you know, they agreed like, well, we can't have a dollar that's strong, and suddenly, you know, right. we're, you know, it's back to, back to, you know, eighty on the DXY, the the the, the, the benchmark. It usually the, yeah. is about the Fed. It is usually about the Fed, and you know, we're, 
I think by many measures, we're about 15 to 20 percent overvalued where we are now on the DXY. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think a lot of people will recognize that. It's just a question of, you know, when you look at long-term charts, that's, that's certainly what's implied. Uh, and, you know, you're seeing uh, rates uh, higher from a lot of regimes around the world, a lot of other currencies. So it's not uh, the U.S. is not the only place where yield is, is, is possible in terms of the currency. Um, so I think that's one catalyst. Uh, I also think, you know, international smidcap companies have historically been much more profitable than U.S. smidcap companies, much higher margins, higher internal rates of return. Uh, and by the way, stronger balance sheets too. <laughs> but they haven't had the level of margin expansion since the global economic crisis that U.S. stocks have had. So I think there is also, we see it in our holdings, the potential for incremental margin expansion. Again, these are already more profitable, but they have scope to get even more profitable uh, uh, with, uh, with higher margins and higher returns. So that, that could be a catalyst. I think on the geopolitical stage, you know, seeing how some of these um, economies integrate and manage immigration is going to be an important uh, a catalyst. I, I am personally uh, optimistic about uh, Europe's uh, absorption of immigrants, and that tends to be a catalyst for growth and innovation. Um, you know, uh, when countries like Sweden, which are a fraction or size, are taking more immigrants on an absolute basis by a factor of, by a multiple than the U.S. is, <laughs> you know, from certain countries, uh, that you're, you're going to get an impact. And in the short term, uh, you know, that can be uh, a little volatile or a little rough, and there's cultural chafing and sometimes things that are even worse than that. But over the long term, you're getting a whole new base of more motivated uh, workers and people that are going to innovate. And I think Europe's already been through a lot of the tougher period of the of the immigration boom and i don't think that's going to end because you know global warming means more immigration right. it's just going to continue this is going to be a secular issue uh and and by the way an important issue for the u.s to figure out as well sure i'm not sure, sure we're doing a great job with that yet but uh but a lot of these countries in europe where we're heavily invested at least in terms of the headquarters of our countries uh are a lot of them are in europe about 60 percent of the portfolio uh, uh, you know, th I think they are going to benefit from that, uh, you know, uh, uh, less expensive labor force and, and, and hungrier labor force. All right. Well, Brian, it looks like our time is winding down. And since we promised we wouldn't ask any Bitcoin questions, I guess we can't go there. <laughs> so is there a, anything else, um, Brian, that you have on your list while we have David here? My last question would be, so you had talked about the exposure to Europe. Um, where else is the exposure in your portfolio? Do, do you ever think specifically about the country or it sounds like it's always from the bottom up? And do you have exposure to emerging markets? Yes. So the bottom line is we, you know, we are companies, not countries right. in terms of how we invest. So it is very much the bottom up. Uh, th the way I'd, I'd like uh, people to think about our approach um, and the way I think about it is really more in terms of revenue exposure than um, geographic than geogra than 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 the exposure of like the listing of the company right. where you know the stock exchange is listed on or the, where the headquarters are. Again, we're invested in so many of these world leading businesses, either global number ones or let's say global number two, but they're multinational businesses. If you're providing a mission critical service. Uh, Everyone in the world wants to work with you, and that means emerging market companies want to be your customer as well. So that's how 
how, how our companies interact with the world. So from a perspective of kind of cumulative revenue in the portfolio, we probably have about 30% exposure roughly to the emerging markets, so quite substantial. Uh, and that again is what matters. If you look at the portfolio from the perspective of headquarter, we probably only have about 7% emerging markets. But this is very deliberate because we rather, all other things being equal, we rather get the world-class corporate governance that you're going to get investing in a, you know, uh, a, a European company, particularly north of the Alps in Europe, you know, global number one, those types of corporate governance standards selling to China rather than investing in a local player in China where, you know, corporate governance on average is much lower. Um, that's, that's just an objective, <laughs> that's an objective assessment. That's not a controversial statement. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's kind of how we go about it. We rather, you know, for, for a market like Russia, for example, we much rather invest in a Finnish company that sells to Russia than invest in a Russian equity. Right. Why? Because Finnish corporate governance standards are completely different. The Finns have been trading with the Russians for hundreds of years. They know them a lot better than we do. But I don't really want to get exposure to Russian corporate right. governance and kind of the, the, the capricious approach to shareholders' rights, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't mind having exposure to the Russian consumer. Right. So Finland. That's the answer. Right. Finland's the answer. Yeah. Well, we could listen to you all day, but um, we'll let you get back to your regularly scheduled program. But it's been a pleasure, Brian. Yeah. And thank Jody, you so thank much you. for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of another Greater Possibilities podcast. But the conversation doesn't stop here. It does not. Visit Invesco.com slash Brian Levitt to read my latest commentaries. And of course, you can follow me on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Brian Levitt. And if you missed any of that, that information is on our podcast page. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Invesco's Greater Possibilities podcast. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers, are based on current market conditions as of August 16th, 2023, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. Not a deposit, not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, may lose value, not insured by any federal government agency. Before investing, investors should carefully read the prospectus and or summary prospectus and carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. For this and more complete information about the fund, investors should ask their financial professionals for a prospectus or summary prospectus or visit Invesco.com slash fund prospectus. The investment techniques and risk analysis used by the fund's portfolio managers may not produce the desired results. This does not constitute a recommendation of any investment strategy or product for a particular investor. Investors should consult a financial professional before making any investment decisions. Should this contain any forward-looking statements, understand that they are not guarantees of future results. They involve risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. There can be no assurance that actual results will not differ materially from expectations. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Discussions of specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be considered buy or sell recommendations. In general, stock values fluctuate, sometimes widely, in response to activities specific to the company, as well as general market, economic, and political conditions. The risks of investing in securities of foreign issuers, including emerging market issuers, can include fluctuations in foreign currencies, political and economic instability, and foreign taxation issues. Stocks of small and mid-sized companies tend to be more vulnerable to adverse developments, may be more volatile, 
and may be illiquid or restricted as to resale. Many products and services offered in technology-related industries are subject to rapid obsolescence, which may lower the value of the issuers. The healthcare industry is subject to risks relating to government regulation, obsolescence caused by scientific advances, and technological innovations. Growth stocks tend to be more sensitive to changes in their earnings and can be more volatile. As with any comparison, investors should be aware of the material differences between active and passive strategies. Unlike passive strategies, active strategies have the ability to react to market changes and the potential to outperform a stated benchmark. Other differences include, but are not limited to, expenses, management style, and liquidity. Investors should consult their financial professional before investing. All data sourced to Invesco as of July 31st, 2023, unless otherwise noted. From 2000 through 2009, the S&P 500 index lost 9%, while the MSCI All Country World Index gained 37%. From 2010 through 2019, the S&P 500 index gained 256%, while the MSCI All Country World Index gained 71%. Those are total returns sourced from Bloomberg as of August 2023. Past performance does not guarantee future results, and investment cannot be made into an index. The MSCI All Country World Index is an unmanaged index considered representative of large and mid-cap stocks across developed and emerging markets. References to the growing weight of U.S. stocks and global benchmarks and the number of U.S. companies in the top 10 positions is from FactSet Research Systems, based on the MSCI All Country World Index as of June 30, 2023. U.S. investors' allocations to international versus U.S. small and mid-cap stocks is from Morningstar as of June 30, 2023. According to Bloomberg, there were about 12,800 non-U.S. small and mid-cap companies with market caps from 300 million to 10 billion as of June 30, 2023. References to returns, Sharpe ratios, and Sortino ratios are from Morningstar data from July 1, 2007 through July 31, 2023. Over monthly rolling 10-year periods, International small and mid-caps had an average annual return of 5.89%, compared to 4.47% for international large caps. International small and mid-caps had an average sharp ratio of 0.40, compared to 0.33 for international large caps. International small and mid-caps had an average Sortino ratio of 0.60, compared to 0.49 for international large caps. International small and mid-caps are represented by the MSCI All Country World XUSA SMID Index, which captures mid and small cap representation across developed and emerging markets minus the U.S. International large caps are represented by the MSCI All Country World XUSA Large Index, which captures large cap representation across developed and emerging markets minus the U.S. References to the opportunity set, profitability, and balance sheets of international SMID versus U.S. SMID are based on the MSCI All Country World XUSA SMID Index versus the Russell 2500 Index as of June 30, 2023, sourced from FactSet Research Systems. The Russell 2500 Index is a trademark service mark of the Frank Russell Company. It is an unmanaged index considered representative of small and mid-cap U.S. stocks. 
References to international small and mid-cap active management outperforming the benchmark is from Morningstar as of June 30th, 2023. Active managers represented by the Morningstar foreign small mid-growth category. There were 129, 115, and 82 funds within this category for the three, five, and 10-year periods, respectively. Benchmark performance represented by the MSCI All Country World XUSA SMID Index. The Sharpe Ratio is a measure of risk-adjusted performance calculated by dividing the amount of performance a portfolio earned above the risk-free rate of return by the standard deviation of returns. The Sortino Ratio differs from the Sharpe Ratio in that it only considers the standard deviation of the downside risk rather than upside and downside risk. Standard deviation measures a portfolio's or index's range of total returns in comparison to the mean. Return on capital measures the profitability of a company by dividing earnings by capital employed. Internal rate of return is the annual rate of growth that an investment is expected to generate. The U.S. Dollar Index, or DXY, measures the value of the U.S. dollar relative to the majority of its most significant trading partners. A basis point is one hundredth of a percentage point. Nestle is not a holding of Invesco International Small Mid Company Fund as of July 31, 2023. Holdings are subject to change and are not buy or sell recommendations. The Greater Possibilities Podcast is brought to you by Invesco Distributors, Inc.